Welcome to Daily Daf Differently, a Jcast Network podcast in collaboration with the Conservative Yeshiva in Jerusalem. This daily podcast invites you to join us to study the Daily Talmud page with a variety of liberal rabbis and teachers. For more information about the Conservative Yeshiva, please visit conservativeyeshiva.org. For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Hi, this is Joshua Kulp. I'm doing the Daily Daf differently for Daf Dalid of Masechet Ketubot, of Tractate Ketubot. Uh, today's Daf is almost all about Avelut, about the laws of mourning. Some of you may have listened. I actually taught the laws of mourning last time I was teaching for Daily Daf differently in the third chapter of Moed Katan. But what I wanted to talk a little bit about today, besides some of the particulars in, in the sugya, is just in general how similar the laws of mourning are to the laws of marriage. Very interesting. I have a book here by a uh, person who didn't teach me, but I knew from my days uh, at the Schechter Institute, Shmuel Glick, who wrote a, uh, wrote a couple books about Avilut. And the second, I believe, the second of these books is called Or Naga Alehem, A Light Shined on Them. And the subtitle is The Connection Between the Laws or the Customs of Weddings and the Customs of Mourning in Jewish Tradition. Uh, and some of these probably you know about already. <clears throat> Most blatant would be the idea that there are seven days of mourning and there are seven days of feasting for uh, for a wedding. But it goes it gets a lot deeper than that. And so it's not coincidental, I don't think, that in the chapter in the Bavli that is about wedding and about the wedding customs and about the initial days of marriage also manages to interweave a sugya about Avelut. Uh, later on, we're going to see another, just a couple other issues that are very similar. Uh, today, most people are familiar with Birkot Hanisuin, sometimes called the Sheva Brachot. Uh, but people don't know is that there used to be a very rich source called Birkata Avilim, blessings of mourners. And we're going to get to that later on in the Bavli. It even contains uh, the Nusach, the version, the reading of what, what we say for Birkat Avirim. People no longer say Birkat Avirim, the blessings over mourning, anymore. We do other saying customs, but not those particular brachot. But when you look at the uh, the particulars of the version of them, they're very, very similar, and it's almost like an antithesis. Uh, I'll give you another example. Uh, is uh, The notion that comes up quite a bit in the Bavli is when do you nullify the study of Torah? What the rabbis envision, the idea that a person is supposed to be studying Torah all of the time. When are you allowed to stop studying Torah to engage in another mitzvah? And two of the examples they give, the two probably most prominent examples, are if you hear a wedding feast, if you have to participate in a wedding feast, and if you're an Avel. Uh, The same thing about being exempt from Kriyat both a Chatan, the the groom, and the Avel, and the mourner, are both exempt from Kriyat And there are a lot of positive customs, customs of dances, uh, post-Hamida customs and customs of lighting candles and putting ashes on one's head and using a myrtle, uh, the roles of other people. Uh, I mean, there's literally a whole, I think it is about 400-page book full of parallels between the two customs. I believe it's only in Hebrew, but it's a very interesting book. Again, it's called Or Naga Alehem. Now, to get to some of the particulars, I wanted to talk... Um, 
uh, a little bit of some of the particulars on the DAF, and I wanted to touch on two issues. One that comes up here, and it also comes up in Masechet Sukkah, is the issue of sexual attraction at the time of mourning. And there's a big debate in uh, Masechet Sukkah. Does a person have Yetzir Hara, sexual desire, while he is mourning? And it seems quite clear that uh, the rabbis expect that one could possibly have sexual desire at the time of mourning. I know you probably may be familiar with there's that inevitable movie scene where two people, one of them has just experienced a terrible loss. Usually it's a man and a woman. One of the ma male or the ma man or the woman has experienced a terrible loss. And they sit down on a bed or on a couch. And uh, next thing you know, what happens in the movies starts to happen. And uh, I'm always amazed at that, that sort of grief sex moment, I would say, in the movies. I find that very interesting. Um, but the Bavli talks about it happening exactly at the moment of um, preparation for wedding. What happens? So his pita was baked, and his cow or animal was slaughtered to eat. And his wine was mixed. And he put the water on the meat to prepare it. And one of the parents of the bride or the groom died. What do you do then? At that point, you put the <coughs> dead body away. You bring them into their, their chupa, whatever that was in the time of the Talmud. He has the first sexual intercourse, and then he separates from her. And he has seven days of a feast. And then, once his seven days of the feast are over, only then would he begin the seven days of Avirut, of mourning. To prevent them from having sex during those seven days, all those seven days, he's not allowed to even have yichud with her, seclusion with her. He has to sleep among the men, and she sleeps among the women. Uh, and what that basically means is, despite the fact, normally in Avelut, uh, a husband and wife are allowed to sleep and have yichud together, even if sexual relations is prohibited, which it is in most days of Avelut, if not in all days of Avelut, um, there is still... Uh, no prohibition of them being isolated, secluded together. But because this is the first seven days, they've only been able to have sexual relations once. So during those, that particular period, those seven days, we separate the two of them uh, because I guess their their desire for each other is strongest during the first seven days of their marriage. Uh, but we don't prevent a bride from wearing her, her jewelry or her, perhaps her um, uh, makeup and things like that for the first 30 days because we want her to remain desirous, uh, her husband to remain desirous of her, sure to remain beautiful to her husband. He shouldn't have relations, not on Friday or on Shabbat, on Erev Shabbat. I'm going to get into that back when I talk about the days of the wedding. So you can see here that the rabbis anticipate there's going to be sexual attraction even during the time of Avirut. Uh, we see that later on. Um, 
in the case, let me just read an example, and then we'll talk about this brighter for two for two couple minutes here. Mishamed Chamiv O Chamoto. So a, a husband, a man uh, whose father-in-law or mother-in-law has died, he can't force his wife to dress up, to uh, put on her makeup. He overturns his bed, which if you remember from Masechet Moed Katan was a sign of mourning. He overturns his bed and he um, observes Avelut with her. If her father-in-law or mother die, she is not allowed to adorn herself with makeup. Rather, she has to turn over her bed and observe Avelut with her. So I've sort of moved on to the next topic, the final topic that I wanted to talk about. This Brita, very interestingly, imagines that if a husband's relatives die, she keeps Avelut mourning with him. And if her relatives die, he keeps Avelut with her. Now, we're used to today the concept that a person observes Avelut, the laws of mourning, only for their seven immediate relatives. Father, mother, brother, sister, son, daughter, and wife or husband. Um, but in the time of the Mishnah or in the time of um, the early Talmud, Talmudic times, it does seem that Avilut was observed in a broader circle, and it was progressively mitzumtzam, shrunk, the circle of people who you would mourn for, perhaps mirroring a shrinking of the nuclear family. In other words, if in the time when the nuclear family was what we would call the expanded family, and it would include grandchildren, uncles, aunts, cousins, uh, a larger circle of people, you would mourn not just like, uh, secondary mourning, but real mourning for a broader circle of people. And this Brita expects that your father-in-law, your mother-in-law, be a, for a man or for a woman, are really uh, a relative in the full sense of a word. Maybe not just like mother and father, I don't want to go so far, but you really observe the mourning practices for your in-laws. It doesn't say anything about brother-in-law, sister-in-law, but for your mother-in-law, father-in-law, for both sexes, you do observe full mourning laws. But this is already limited in the Amoraic period. Uh, we'll finish up with one note that comes uh, later on in the sugya. It says, only lo imo This only refers to a case when she is with him in the house. Uke damale rav Like rav chia said to his son, be'apa when you're in front of your wife and one of her close relatives have died, observe the laws of mourning. When you're not in front of her, you do not need to observe the laws of mourning because when you're not in front of her, you're not really mourning. In essence, you don't mourn over your in-laws. All that you do is show respect to your spouse by mourning with him or her when in his or her presence after the death of their in-laws. So you can see here already in the Talmudic period, the circle of people for whom you mourn has been shrunk to include, let's say, blood relatives with the exception of one's wife or spouse. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of Daily Daf Differently and that you'll join us again tomorrow for a new page. The music at the open and close of this episode is Ufros from the Epichorus album One Bead available on Bandcamp, iTunes, and Spotify.